Hey, listeners. Before we get to this week's podcast, I have a couple of quick announcements. First, if you're in Texas, Louisiana, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Kansas, Missouri, Nebraska, Illinois, or Tennessee, get excited because Prom Date, aka the amazing synth pop group that has so generously lent their sounds to Serial Dater, is going on tour and coming to a town near you. Go to www.promdatemusic.com for tour dates and more info. Second, for our New York fans, make sure you check out Two Scoops, the legendary, recently reunited, entirely fictional 90s R&B girl group, co-starring the omni-talented Adam Enright, who does the voices of the dates here on Serial Dater. Two Scoops will be performing at Joe's Pub on June 8th. I'll have links to all of this on the show page at www.serialdaterpodcast.com. Thanks, everyone. Previously on Serial Dater. I've been a terrible dater for most of my life, except for this one week in the spring of 2011 when I went on five first dates in one week. Date number one. I've nicknamed this guy Bowtie. Date number two in my five dates in one week marathon was with an airline pilot. Date number three. Argyle. The worst date of my life. I think what a bad date comes down to is an inability or unwillingness of the parties to communicate. The lack of communication in a relationship is a problem. So one would think that the antidote to that would be a lot of communication, right? Wrong. In February of 2010, my former high school journalism advisor, Paul, invited me to talk to his journalism classes about the publishing industry. I was almost two years into my time at Marvel by this point, And the idea that I might be someone worth having talked to a class was still new and kind of flattering. During the talk, I kept referencing how my own experience with high school journalism shaped my career, though to make things make more sense, I kept having to refer to the years I worked on my high school paper, 1998 to 2001, as the early internet or pre-smartphone days. All of our editing was done on paper, we sent physical copies of the pages to the printer, And the only digital camera we had was a Kodak DC-50, which only took black and white pictures and was roughly the size of a Gideon Bible. Afterwards, at lunch with Paul, I asked if he thought I did okay. It was great, he said, though I think every time you referenced the early internet days, the student's eyes glazed over a little bit. As a 26-year-old, this was a little bit of a cruel realization, that I had distinct memories of a cultural and technological moment that people less than a decade younger than me had no concept of. I flashed back to my parents, joking about how, when they were kids, there were no remote controls, and every time you wanted to change the channel, you had to get up. At the risk of making all of your eyes glaze over, I want to talk about another techno-cultural divide that I clearly remember both sides of, and one that has had a big effect on dating, the text message. It seems to me that most visions of the future included some sort of video phone. That was the next logical step after cell phones. And suddenly we all seem to have them, though somewhat astonishingly we hardly ever use them. Every now and again, I'll accidentally FaceTime someone, but only my brother or sister will ever pick up. In last summer's film, Birdman, which I loved, a couple minutes into the movie, Emma Stone's character video calls her dad, played by Michael Keaton, from a Korean grocery. 
Hey, Sam. Hey, what kind of Shut up! What kind of flowers did you say you wanted? Acamellias. There's something that smells nice, you know? Something sweet. It all smells Listen, like fucking kimchi. Okay, something that looks nice. You know, anything but roses. I hate this job. I can't. The moment works in the film, and I'll take any opportunity to look at Emma Stone, he said in a loving gay man kind of way, but makes no sense in real life. Where is she holding the phone while she talks to him? Back over behind her head like some strange dance move from a Lady Gaga video? Instead, modern communication happens largely over text, which, when you think about it, was a strange move in the development of interpersonal media. We tend to think of technology becoming more sophisticated as time goes on, but the move from phone calls to text messages was a strange devolution of communication, trading the richness of audio calls, where the words are augmented by tone and inflection, for the low bandwidth of 160 characters. Which, maybe that doesn't matter for mundane messages like, hey, I'm gonna be five minutes late. Unless the guy has a problem with being on time, in which case you might need to know whether it's like, hey, I'm gonna be five minutes late, or hey, I'm gonna be five minutes late. Although at this point, I suppose the text message is no longer mundane. Suddenly, all manner of important conversations were happening over text message, and still are, constantly, everywhere, every day. Before my week-long marathon of dates, though, I'd almost exclusively disliked dating-related text messages for how little information they conveyed. I never once thought I'd despise them for telling me too much. You have one unread audio message from Charlie Beckerman, a.k.a. Serial Dater. I first encountered texting when I went to Paris for study abroad in the spring of 2004. As part of our orientation, we were advised that if we got cell phones, that it was much more cost-effective to text rather than to make phone calls. I was living with a friend, Jessica, and the two of us went in on a cell phone together, a cute teal Nokia 3410 that we nicknamed Guy, which is the French pronunciation of Guy, a frequent character in our French textbook. Learning how to text was kind of like learning a poetry form. But instead of counting syllables and iams, we were counting characters. If memory serves, upon returning to the States mid-2004, phone calls were still, as they said in France, de rigueur. I went back to France for the 2005-2006 school year to teach English in Nice, but this time, when I got back to New York, texting had taken over with the fervor of a bar mitzvah macarena. By 2007, according to Nielsen, texts outpaced phone calls. Now, I hardly use any of the cell phone minutes that I pay for, even though they're the most expensive components of my cell phone plan. Texting is a poor communication tool in general, but I think it's literally the worst way to convey any sort of emotional or romantic message. The mating rituals of the adult Homo sapiens are an intricate and nuanced dance of words, gestures, tones, facial expressions, and body language. Trying to do all that via text messaging is like trying to suck a very thick milkshake through a coffee straw. And yet, we all do it. I do it, of course I do it. I suppose if I was more principled, I'd refuse to text when it comes to matters of the heart, 
But convenience and instant gratification trumps quality in the modern age almost every time. Plus, if I stop texting, I might end up never going on another date again. Texting has become standard operating procedure. This is too bad since I have definitely dropped guys during the pre-date texting period for being boring or just bad texters. The most obvious problem with texting is how easy it is to misinterpret or to be misinterpreted. This is actually a phenomenon that applies to all methods of communication and stems from the problems inherent in communicating anything. The best rendering of this I've seen is from Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics, which is simply amazing and about way more than comics. As McCloud puts it, we human beings all live in a state of profound isolation. No other human being can ever know what it's like to be you from the inside, and no amount of reaching out to others can ever make them feel exactly what you feel. All media of communication are a byproduct of our sad inability to communicate directly from mind to mind. Each medium, the term comes from the Latin word meaning middle, serves as a bridge between minds. Media convert thoughts into forms that can traverse the physical world and be reconverted by one or more senses back into thoughts. McLeod goes on to make the argument that one of the great things about comics is that there's less room for misinterpretation, though there's still plenty. Text messages are problematic not just because they have to cross the interpersonal divide, but because they have so little room for detail and nuance. It's like taking a picture of the Mona Lisa and shrinking it way down before blowing it back up. Sure, we might be able to tell that it's the Mona Lisa, but it's also become something else. Or, to use another art-related example from the major motion picture, Clueless... Do you think she's pretty? She's a full-on Monet. What's a Monet? It's like the painting, see? From far away it's okay, but up close it's a big old mess. Let's ask a guy. Laura Martin, one of the top comic book colorists in the industry, not to mention all-around great person, once showed me a chart she'd made of all the ways in which colors in comics can get messed up. Different monitors can have different color settings, the laser printer used for proofs uses wildly different processes than the presses the final product will be run on, the lighting in the room can even change how things look. I wanted to make a similar chart for the misinterpretation that occurs in text messaging, and borrowing the now-retired terror threat rainbow from the Department of Homeland Security, I came up with the following threat of text message misinterpretation system. The first level is green. Misinterpretation level, I got you, babe. These texts have little opportunity for interpersonal misinterpretation. The topics tend to be neutral, though it's important to state that what might be a neutral topic for one text exchange might be explosive in another. In a green text, both sides are fairly confident that the messages are getting through more or less unadulterated. If you want to think about it like a Venn diagram, this is one where the circles are almost entirely overlapping. If Joe texts Rachel saying, hey, could you pick up some beer? Neither Joe nor Rachel interprets the message as including anything other than a request for beer. Blue. Misinterpretation level, fine. These texts might wander into contention because they stress an underlying but not immediate problem or disagreement between the two texters, like the person who might be chronically late. 
the potential for misinterpretation is low, or at least if there's an initial misread, it's subsequently revised. For instance, the text from Joe to Rachel saying, hey, I'm running five minutes late to the movie, might first prompt Rachel to think, doesn't Joe know I like to get into the theater early? Why doesn't he give a shit about me? But is then followed up by, that's silly, he probably just got caught on the subway. He doesn't mean anything by it. Blue misinterpretation doesn't require any clarification or follow-up. Yellow. Misinterpretation level, seriously? These texts are loaded either in topic or in implication, and either an accidental carelessness of the sender or an unrecognized heightened sensitivity of the reader causes significant miscommunication. This is where you'll also find the loathed glib text, your okays, or I don't cares, or sures, especially when the text receiver is hoping for specificity and is only getting generalities. Usually this requires some backtracking and clarification. Orange. Misinterpretation level, ugh. Texts that are either sent with a willful aloofness by the writer or are purposefully misconstrued by the reader, or sometimes both. Anyone who's ever gotten or sent a passive-aggressive text will know what level orange is all about. Red. Misinterpretation level, throws phone against the wall and it shatters into a million pieces. This is when the writer goes from willful aloofness to malicious ignorance, or when the reader goes from purposeful misconstruing to wholesale reinterpretation. At this point, we can't even say that the two parties are having a conversation with each other, they're really just talking to themselves. To go back to the Venn diagram, here the circles are not overlapping at all. For instance, Rachel, I hate your band! Joe, I hate your hair! But misinterpretation, or the potential for it, is something we seem largely aware of, something we can agree can happen, sometimes with hilarious results. For the best of these, you should definitely check out Katie Heaney's Between the Texts series on the hairpin. I'll link to it on the website. The other two effects that texts have had on dating are more sinister because they're less obvious. The first of these is that texting has put us in constant contact. In episode two, I talked about the necessity for rat-a-tat between two people on a date, that fun, easy exchange between two compatible people. Back in the pre-texting days, ugh, I know, sorry, you'd only have to be your best self for a couple of hours per date, plus, say, five or ten minutes every now and again when you were on the phone. Now, you can be expected to be on every waking moment. Aside from being exhausting, I think it forces us to render a verdict on the other person too soon, following the notion that with a good partner there will be instantaneous and unceasing rapport. Not having had a super successful romantic relationship, I can only examine my relationships with my close friends, but it seems to me that none of these friendships began this way. Some people I knew for a few weeks before we started hanging out on the regs, others for a year or more. And yet, if I'd expected them to text me continuously every day, it's possible that we'd have never made it past a month. The final thing that texting, and to some extent email, has done to relationships, and I think it's done this to all relationships, social, romantic, familial, professional, is to inflate the significance of a phone call. I'm fully willing to accept the possibility that I'm just paranoid, but now, whenever my phone rings, my first thought is, what's wrong? 
This thought may abate if it's my grandmother, but now that my parents are well-versed in texting, a phone call always prompts the question, why didn't they just text? As a side note, when I was working at Marvel, this was true on a much more severe level. Every time my desk phone rang, it could only mean something was wrong, and I learned to dread the ring of my phone. This line of thinking then works back on itself for when I think about calling someone else. I could call someone, but why wouldn't I just text? The answers are usually simple, if not a little cheesy. It's nice to hear someone else's voice. There's also a protocol involved with a spoken conversation that's easier to bypass in texts. The, how's your day going? Or, thanks for calling. These may seem like small gestures, but they play an important role in our psychology, both making the person on the other end of the line more real, more human, and by making us feel less disconnected or isolated. Still, that doesn't stop the chorus of, I'd probably be interrupting them, or I really don't have anything important to say, from keeping me from dialing. In some strange way, texting has inflated the cost, that is, the social cost, of a phone call so much that for everyday conversation, we've been priced out. This is not to say that had date number four and I exchanged more mundane conversations, or had we given each other more of a chance, or had we just gotten on the phone and talked, that everything would have worked out fine. Like dates one, two, and three, date number four and I just weren't a good fit. Something I found out 160 characters at a time. Welcome to date number four, the texter. In the four days leading up to it, from March 30th to April 3rd, 2011, the texter and I exchanged 155 text messages. Planning a date with the texter was surprisingly difficult because he worked two jobs, not out of necessity, but because he had a compulsion to fill his time with work. I surround myself with books as often as possible. He worked at a small book publisher during the day and at a bookstore on nights and weekends. We didn't get that far into the reasons behind why, but the way he talked about it, that is, texted, it sounded like he didn't understand the idea of time off, the way an OCD hand washer doesn't understand the idea of clean enough. Because of this, he regularly worked six and seven day weeks and had almost no free time to meet up. We finally decided on a brunch date for late Sunday morning so that we could be done in time for him to get to his afternoon shift at the bookstore. But during all this planning, there were hours-long conversations occurring over text. He asked questions that ranged from the quotidian to the cryptic. Do you date often? Do you live alone or with roommates? Do you have a dark sense of humor or are you politically correct? Are you a nice guy? Eventually, I stopped him and had to ask, Why do you need to know all of this ahead of time? His unedited response? Because it's important. If you're politically correct, then that's a red flag. Honestly, I want to date a guy who can above all make me laugh and have a good time with. By the way, I realize that dinging someone for bad grammar and syntax and text messages is kind of like judging someone based on the facial expressions they make during a difficult bowel movement, but I felt it was important to include here. I tried to explain to him that that's what first dates are for, to see if you wanted to go on a second date, but I sensed that there was something else going on. Over the course of the day, and so, so many texts... I realized that, really, he just sounded lonely and wanted someone to talk to. 
So we chit-chatted back and forth about everything and nothing. But as we continued talking, I was already seeing that we weren't that compatible. At one point, he was telling me about how he was nervous that an IT systems update at his publishing job was going to corrupt the giant Excel database he managed. Some of my files I created are a little intense. Since my default reaction to almost anything is to make a joke, I wrote back, Oh, Excel, you're so sassy. What do you mean, sassy? It took me a solid minute or two to explain that I was just kidding, but even still, it threw a major wrench in the works. Our senses of humor were out of whack, and this worried me. On the Friday before our date, he sent me a message saying, I think there's something important you should know about me before, and if you want to cancel Sunday, I understand. I'm just going to say it. I intend to see Hop, the movie, at some point. Now, this was where I could really be a jerk. This was a perfectly decent attempt at humor, and after the disaffectedness of Bowtie, the dryness of the pilot, and the sheer unpleasantness of Argyle, how awesome was it that this guy was making a solid stab at a joke? It already put him head and shoulders above any of the three other guys. And yet, I could tell this was going to be a close-but-no-cigar situation. For better or for worse, I'd already gotten the click in my head, and I hadn't even met him. So, why didn't I just call it off? A combination of two things. The first ingredient was that all I had to judge him on at this point was our lack of rapport over text messages, which, as I've said, would be kind of like deciding to boycott a movie or TV show because I thought the poster was dumb. And since the only thing I had to judge him on were our stilted text exchanges, it wasn't enough to disrupt our momentum. Momentum, the second ingredient in this cocktail, fascinates me as it relates to relationships. I see momentum as a combination of our own expectations, what we think are the other person's expectations, and what the expectations of the people around us are. It all swirls together into a forward propulsion that sometimes leads us to do crazy things. I hate to bring it back to narrative, but the locomotion of stories is powerful. Think of anyone you know who's stayed in a bad relationship longer than they should have. There's a very reasonable desire there to keep things going in order to avoid letting down your partner, letting down the friends around you, and most of all, letting down yourself. All by way of saying that if you're going to bail on someone, things need to be pretty bad for you to do it during high momentum moments. Not that the texter and I had, like, a lot of momentum, or really much of a narrative, but if I can use some transportation metaphors, if leaving someone at the altar is jumping from an airplane, as in how bad is it on that airplane that you have to jump out of it, then my bailing on the texter after I agreed to go on a date but before we even got a chance to meet would have been like trying to get off the subway between stations. Sure, it could have been done in an emergency, but think about how bad something would have to be in a subway car to pull that brake. I wasn't anywhere near there. Besides, it was on me to pick our brunch place, and at this point in the week, I figured I might as well pick a place where I like the food. I chose a restaurant called The Smith because of something called the potato waffle. 
The potato waffle is a brunch dish that includes three waffles made out of potato flour, each topped with a poached egg and some kind of herbed spinach sauce that the restaurant claims is a hollandaise, but I think might be part crack cocaine. My friend Anna's response when I told her my game plan was, literally, the worst case scenario involves a potato waffle. When I arrived at the restaurant, he was finishing a cigarette, which, unfortunately, was another strike against him. I didn't know he smoked. Which, like, fine, you do you, but I just can't get behind Ashmouth. Just thinking about it makes me nauseous. He had smoker's teeth, too. Another hypocritical moment on my part, perhaps, as I hardly have a toothpaste commercial caliber mouth, and what kind of monster judges someone based on their teeth, but, well, there I was. He was short and slight, but cute, though as we hugged our hellos and headed inside, I realized it wasn't in a way that I was particularly excited by. These were all things that I would have eagerly overlooked had I felt something more for him, but perhaps I was experiencing the flip side of momentum. These new in-person revelations were adding to the drag. During the meal, our conversation continued as it had for the last few days, punchlines not quite landing on both fronts, his questions feeling overly personal or specific, my answers feeling evasive and conciliatory. As if to underscore all this, at one point on my way back from the bathroom, I spotted former Vermont governor and presidential hopeful Howard Dean in the restaurant. Upon relating this back to the texter, he smiled and said, Who's Howard Dean? If you'd asked me before our date whether it would be important to me that my date know who Howard Dean was, I'd have said you were crazy. But there, in the moment, it felt like one more disconnect, one more way in which we weren't quite speaking the same language. On top of all this, and perhaps the cause of all this, there's something I haven't told you, dear listeners. I already had another date planned for later that day. It was date number five, and I was much more excited about that one than this one. Even the potato waffle wasn't quite what I'd hoped, a little too heavy and filling, a little too guilty. The texter had told me about growing up in Brooklyn, and endearingly he had a slight lilt of a Brooklyn accent, as if he spent his early youth at Ebbets Field. He told me about living with his two older brothers, about how he went from one serious relationship to another. I told him about how I went from one serious crush to another, and this got a laugh, but maybe also I saw the first glimmers of understanding in his eyes that things weren't going the way he, or really either of us, had hoped. We finished the meal and headed out of the restaurant, and he lit up another cigarette as we walked towards the subway, though the conversation had ebbed considerably. We were waiting for the light to change at a corner, and he broke the silence. You don't smoke, do you? No. He nodded, taking another drag, looking wise. I think we hugged goodbye, but it might have been a handshake. We definitely didn't kiss. Later that afternoon, he texted me... Hey, I had fun today. Let me know if you want to do dinner or a movie sometime. I never texted him back. New but familiar I tried to tell you that we had met before A drunken exchange I learned your first name You promised you would call I suppose I should add one more level to the text misinterpretation chart, which is black, misinterpretation level, the meaning of silence. When you send someone a text and they don't reply, and you're left to read all manner of horrible and insane things onto it. 
It's like when 24-hour news cable networks have no news to report, and so keep cycling the same totally inane stories over and over again. Sometimes I feel like I have my own headline crawl along the bottom of my vision. I have by far suffered the most from this kind of communication, because once you've taken graduate school classes with rhetoric and composition PhD students, even saying nothing is saying something. And it's the kind of communication that I feel most guilty about inflicting on others. And yet, I've done it myself, dozens of times. I told myself that ghosting and not returning texts after a first date when I don't want to go on a second date is protocol, having been on the receiving end of that stick several times myself. Who wants to get a thanks but no thanks text? Well, the answer is me. While going ghost prots might be the easy way out, I know in my heart of hearts that it's not the right way out. I owe the texter one last text, something short and sweet and courteous, but to the point. I could have done that for him, but I didn't. In my defense, by the time I got the texter's message, I had already moved on in my mind. Because date number five presented an entirely different challenge than one through four. With date number five, I was at a distinct disadvantage. I really, really liked him. Next time on Serial Dating. Serial Dater is written, produced, and edited by me. Special thanks to Fatih Ahmed, Anna Marquardt, Julia Weatherell, Diane Roberts, and everyone in her Fall 2013 article and essay workshop. Extra special thanks to the Petticoat Lane Writers Residency and the Michael and Karen Beckerman Fund for aspiring podcasters. The Texter, played by Adam Enright. Music by Prom Date. You can listen to and buy their album, Portraits, at www.promdatemusic.com. For more information about Serial Dater, please visit our website at www.serialdaterpodcast.com. Oh,